Fast Forward Productions, the women are speaking. So this energy of proving is designed to motivate us. It's designed to be good, but when we come from that place, it adds pressure. It can make us feel really stuck in the sort of less than state of being. And a growth mindset does the opposite. We've all probably heard of the amygdala. And the amygdala response is that response that inside the center of our brain is telling us, it's like the size of an almond, and it determines fight, flight, freeze, like our response to something. So if we come into something and we're already a little bit tenuous, or we're a little bit on shaky ground, we're bracing for the other shoe to drop, we're bracing for disaster. The casting process can often prove to be a mystery. The industry is complicated and decisions are nuanced with no clear path to understanding the how or the why. I'm Amanda Doyle, Casting Director and Director of Casting Relations at Castability. Never before has data science been applied to an artistic process like casting an actor. Castability provides objective data, tracking each unique casting decision, giving actors and casting professionals an ability to analyze their craft. In this podcast, we will dive deep into the exploration of the creative decision-making process and reveal all that we discover in our mission to make these creative decisions quantifiable. Welcome to Castability, the podcast hosted by the Castability team. Well, we're really excited to have Joe on today. Joe Town is the founder of the Performer's Mindset, which is a class I found at the perfect time when I got to L.A., that completely left turned my life. And I credit Joe and Hillary Tuck for that. And he also has the better podcast, which we'll talk about. But as soon as I started working at Castability, I immediately was like, we need Joe Town. And when can we talk to him? And when can we use him as a resource? So when we had this idea for the podcast, I knew he was the first people I wanted to talk to because I think Castability is such an incredible asset for actors only if they have the right mindset. And I actually think it has the potential to be detrimental unless they're coming at it with a mind for growth and a neutral mind looking at scores. So I thought it was really important to talk to Joe today and welcome Joe to the podcast. Thank you so much, Taylor. I'm so happy to see your face. I'm so happy to meet you, Amanda. You as well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just to continue, I wanted to just say like, I am so indebted to your class and also so shocked that it was the first time I had heard about some of these ideas. I had been in acting training for an insane amount of time, and I started developing bad habits subconsciously that I didn't even realize. I kept hearing about, oh, that person's talented, that person's not talented, or they're good, or they're not good. And subconsciously, I learned, okay, you're either one or you're the other, and I need to find out which one I am. Instead of ever looking to see how I could be getting better at my craft, I was constantly looking to see if I was validated as being talented or not. That created debilitating perfectionism. And I really think, you know, your class exposed me to Carol Dweck's mindset and a lot of amazing resources since. And that, along with deliberate practice, like allowed me to actually pursue acting because I was I was thinking about quitting because it's not fun if you don't have the right mindset. Pursue acting, make a living acting, and find joy in it again, which I, I never wanted to lose it. And I, I'm just so grateful. So that's where I kind of wanted to start today with the fundamental 
growth mindset and fixed mindset. Maybe you could explain it to us as if we hadn't heard of it. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, haven't. I would love to and really moved that you shared that. You know, I I think what I'm hearing is that you kind of took it personally, like it was something that was up to you to decide. And I think I just want to name for everyone that it's kind of these systems that are putting us into these situations where there's that binary. Sometimes the system is not because there's a cruel wizard behind a curtain, right? It's it's well-meaning, well-intentioned people who are trying to help us get better. So I just want to name that because I think sometimes we think in these binaries and it's kind of because we're, we're designed to look through life that way. And so you wanted me to speak a little bit about growth mindset. And Carol Dweck is a name you mentioned. Carol Dweck is an incredible researcher and author who was at Columbia University in New York for quite some time, about 18 years before she headed west and went to Stanford. And I think she's been there close to 25 years now. And she wrote the book on mindset. So that book you referenced, we're going to distill, you know, what I just sounded like 43 years of work into <laughs> a couple of sentences. But the gist of it is that fundamentally, there's this idea that we can either be coming from a more fixed mindset or a more growth mindset. Now, for those people listening, you might be thinking, well, yeah, I, I want growth mindset or I have a growth mindset. Or if I asked you to raise your hand and say, are you interested in learning and growing and getting better? Most people would say, yeah. But I think that when we get down to it, sometimes our habits have got us more in a fixed state of mind, state of being. And if it's all right, I'd love to be able to speak to that because I think it helps understand what growth is in antithesis of that. So a fixed mindset is if we've ever gone into, let's say, an audition and tried to prove ourselves. Let's say we were trying to prove ourselves to ourselves first. I still got it. Or, you know, I, I, belong, to, I, I belong in LA. Try to prove to our agent or rep or try to prove to the casting director, I can do a good job, or try to prove to the director or the showrunner or the producers that I'm right for the job. So this energy of proving is designed to motivate us. It's designed to be good. But when we come from that place, it adds pressure. It can make us feel really stuck in the sort of less than state of being. And a growth mindset does the opposite. A growth mindset is really, what can I learn from this opportunity? And that feels really weird to say when there's a job on the line when rent might be at stake, when our health insurance is out there and maybe it's been a rough couple of years. So it's counterintuitive to think about process or growth when outcome is what everybody is measuring. Right, absolutely. I also, what it was so incredible for me is that your classes weren't just ideas. They were also paired with really actionable tools to start because I had been told all this advice before, I'm sure, maybe not in these concrete ways, but certainly someone's been like, why aren't you having fun or do it for you? But without rituals, without tools, I wasn't able to implement it. I think the broadest way we can start talking about it is this idea of deliberate practice and whether it's deliberately practicing these tools. I think I told you before, Joe, after our class, I, I wasn't auditioning. I didn't have auditions to practice with. So I started going to the gym and using these tools that Joe taught and setting my intention and thinking of a rose and a thorn of the form. My form was right. Okay, well, next time I'll do this. And it was silly, but it allowed me to really internalize those tools. So then when I started work on auditions with them, they were right there. It was how I viewed challenging tasks. So I'd love to talk about also what deliberate practice is. And I think as actors, as performers, 
I vividly remember you talking about, you know, practicing as an actor. And I remember looking at you and being like, how do you practice acting? Like, how do you get better? Like, yeah, sure. An athlete can look and see if he's made the score or not. But for me, like, I, I don't have that. Like, it's too vague. It's too artistic. Like, it's not concrete enough. What I think castability offers is some actual feedback. So, Deliberate practice with feedback, if you could talk about that. So I love this idea that practice matters. I think so often we think we have a very narrow lane. I only get to practice in class. Or I only get to practice when I'm in front of my coach. Or maybe I have a group and a network of friends that allow me to practice in some way. We put up a play reading, things like that. And we think that by doing, we're practicing. Yes. And doing alone is not deliberate practice. Deliberate practice probably is something that people have heard about through... Malcolm Gladwell's book, you know, he he sort of wrote about the 10,000 hour rule at one point. And 10,000 hours is how long it takes in order to achieve mastery. And the implication there is very similar to I get better just by doing. But Anders Ericsson, who is the one who coined the phrase deliberate practice, says that's not enough. We can't just be practicing because we could be practicing bad habits 10,000 times. Right. So it's not just enough to practice something. We have to be working in a couple of different environments. We have to be working at the edge of our capability. I grew up watching Suzanne summer videos and I got the pink weight sent to my house. <laughs> I know if I do a couple hundred of them, it might tone me up, but it's not necessarily going to grow my muscles. So the idea of deliberate practice is working on something on purpose that you can measure and that is something that is right outside of your comfort zone, let's say. So that's the sort of big theory. But then you mentioned a couple other things, which is, you know, how do I have feedback? And it's something you're so passionate about and something that you've been talking about with regards to this set of data that you're providing actors. And so I think the idea is like, you know, we drive behind a big truck on the road and it says, how am I driving? Call this number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we often don't know how we're driving and we rely on feedback in the room or from our manager or agent. And sometimes, and I, I don't want to speak for Amanda, but I wonder if that feedback can be totally reliable. You know, if you're underwater in pilot season and you've had a history before where somebody has bristled at giving some kind of advice that they need to hear because they have a defensive sort of fixed mindset about learning, I imagine you're probably not able to give a ton of very deliberate, <laughs> explicit feedback in the room. And we never would, right? Like it's just, well, due to lack of time, but also that, you know, analyzing like psychologically analyzing like over the years, this is hard to kind of explain, but basically we, I think in giving honest, authentic feedback, we can do more damage than good. And so sometimes I feel like we're all just like, it was a nice read, but we went a different direction or good job. We'll try them for something else, something like that, very neutral, because we have all found, my colleagues in, in included in this conversation, that we just don't want to be the reason to spin an actor into a spiral where that is just going to take them out of it because we gave them, you know, what we thought was constructive criticism and they took it the wrong way. Because when we're, when it's being, especially when it's being communicated through a third party, a rep or something like that. If I can say it directly to your face, that's one thing. And so sometimes, especially in a redirect, you know, it's, that's not, that's going to be really constructive criticism in a redirect in the room with you. But if it's like an overall note and it's communicated through somebody else, 
there's such a gray area there that could be misconstrued. And, and I, we have heard that sometimes our notes are forwarded directly to actors. And if, if tone is misinterpreted, then we're going to be doing a lot of damage. So we have generally my, I can tell you for, you know, myself and my colleagues, I don't think we send really specific feedback anymore because we know that these things happen and we don't want to be responsible for ruining someone's life because we said something some way that they misinterpreted or that they, you know, they interpreted as, oh, I suck. And that's just simply not the case. We would never say that somebody sucks. Or have made up a story about their acting and then for the next five years are constantly viewing every audition through that lens when that that's not the truth either. And, and, you know, it's also subjective. So something that like a colleague of mine would point out and say that they didn't necessarily respond to is not necessarily something that I would say that I didn't respond to. I might've loved that. You know what I mean? So it's very difficult to give, you know, feedback. I want to rewind a little bit though. And when you're mentioning all these places where you guys can do deliberate practice, an audition in front of a casting professional did not come up. So are you guys not viewing that opportunity as practice as well? Is that kind of like the end goal? Because to me, the end goal is the job. Every audition should be practice for you. It is for me now, certainly. I don't know that there's like a right or wrong answer for this, but I switching, and I talked about this before, but switching to what do I want to be working on on this specific audition has given me all the power back and has given me all the excitement back. And it's for me now, it's not for them. And so absolutely for additions, for callbacks, even on set. And I think it, it's it's all of it, whether it's the actual term deliberate practice or not, I'm using it through the same lens of, okay, this time I'm on set, I'm working on, you know, stillness or whatever it is, my intention. I, I, I think that's all aimed toward practicing <laughs> deliberately. Right, Joe? Yeah. I mean, I love hearing what you've been playing with and how it's filtered through for you because it's a great question. What are we after in these rooms? I don't think it just starts in those rooms and I don't think it ends in those rooms. And I think for most of us, we put all this pressure on, this is the moment that's going to change my life. It's either going to prove to me I need to move back to wherever, or it's going to be the thing that breaks me through and now my life will be wonderful from here on in. And whether it's a micro version of that, of like, this will help me pay rent, it makes it really hard for people to trust a process. Again, Taylor, you said well-meaning people say stuff like, trust the process, just relax, right? Have more fun. I think how we do small things is how we do all things. And so if we're treating an audition differently than we work at home, differently than we work on set, then we don't know if we're going to be able to deliver because we're not being consistent. Yes. And so it's my hope that people will start to consider increasing the amount of inner oomph and self-directed pressure towards doing deliberate work at home and reduce the overwhelm and the amount of pressure they put on themselves in the room and on set. So the idea is like if we consistently work at this balance of there's some pressure, it's not externally based. It is totally internally motivated. That's the sweet spot. Yes. I feel like walking into a room and that's your intention, that will inform everything you do in that room. So if you're walking into the room and I have to get this job because I have to pay my rent, that informs the rest of everything that comes out of your mouth the second you walk into the room. And we can hear it and see it and smell it because it's a little bit of desperation when that's the intention, walking into the space. 
and or virtual space, whatever it may be, putting yourself on tape and you're thinking the entire time, like, I have to get this job. I have to get this job. I have to get the job. And you're not focused on like what is actually happening. And you're thinking about the wrong thing. Essentially, we can smell it. Everybody can uh, us all the way down to the team that watches it. You know what I mean? So and your work completely shifts, right? Like you said, but no one wants to pick someone to for a role that wouldn't be okay if they didn't get it. Like that, and and that's goes for everything. You're hiring someone; it makes total sense. May I say two quick things about this? Because I think it might be number one. Here's a here's something for anyone listening at home. This might feel counterintuitive, but sometimes when I've told myself, you know how sometimes you get called back or pinned or you have one more test where you're going to do a work session and somebody who cares about you says, it's your job to lose. I, I'm not a fan of that phrase because now you have something that you're trying to protect against and it shifts you from a challenge into a threat mindset where now there's this thing that is going to be taken from you or that you'll fail on. We already don't have the job. Like what if we just accept that we already don't have this job? So if we start at zero, anything that happens is going to be pretty cool information. The second thing is if we already don't have the job, which is sort of one way of dealing with things. The second thing, it's a sports reference. I think that athletes have a lot to learn from us as artists. And I think that there's a lot of things we can learn from them. And I, I love the interchange between the two. There's a book that was written about a football team in San Francisco called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And the gist of it was there was a coach who came into a losing program and who started to take care of all the little things, how people were on the phone how they dress the day of the game. You know, I've heard a lot of different stories about tiny things that were changed in the culture. And they became not only a winning program, but a winning program that sustained over time. And so what I want to say about that is I actually don't care about the results on the day anymore. What I want people to know is it's not to say that results don't matter. We're not just interested in process for life without any care that we're in a business. We care about results. But if you're playing a game in the middle of the game, you're staring at the scoreboard, you're not going to play the game well. We have to find a system that we can consistently do and hopefully enjoy and grow within and learn from. And the more we double down on this process and have clarity around the process, the results start to take care of themselves. And, and just to acknowledge the emotions there, because a firsthand experience, that's really, really scary to say the results don't matter. I'm going to have courage to set my own intention here. I'm going to risk not being perfect for the sake of spontaneity. That I remember talking to you about that, and it's still something you can feel energetically the difference. And Joe, Joe is an actor too, so he knows this. When you are holding on to the lines a little bit and when you are not like that shift is completely transformative in your work but as an actor so terrifying to jump off the cliff or whatever metaphor you want to use and what i'm hearing too is that it's not about winning it's not about winning the room it's not about winning the job it's not about any of that it's about experiencing the process and the journey authentically and enjoying the process and the journey Exactly. And what Joe asked me when I told him, I'm scared. I remember I have all these vivid memories from your class. Really, it was so moving to me. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to let go. I realized, okay, well then do you not want to enjoy it? Do you not want to reach your artistic potential? Do you want to control it that bad? No, the answer is no. I want to risk it all for the sake of my art and for the sake of my own enjoyment of the process. It's just you forget it's not going to be a linear line in anybody's journey. Like some additions you hold on to and some you can really let it flow. Well, and also joy is contagious, right? Yeah. So when you're hyper-focused on achieving a goal in a space and that's all that we can feel 
from you. There's nothing attractive about that. There's something extremely attractive. And again, I think it's all about how can you attract like other people to you? It's like laws of attraction, right? Like it's kind of like, how can you attract just general positivity in regard to you? And so if you enter the situation with, you know, the mindset of like, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to be really present and focused. And then it's not about showing them anything because that's not what it's about. It's about enjoying the process. And through your enjoyment of the process, expressing joy, which then attracts anybody who's watching and listening and paying attention to you, which will ultimately win you the job. Yeah. Right. You can't fake having fun. And one of our first days, Joe was like, have the most fun you can have. Okay, next time have more fun. And so like for people listening, though, like what if it's like this heavy, heavy, heavy drama? How do you walk into a space and be joyful about the process when you have to be in a space that's very dark or sad? So let's, I mean, I think that's interesting to talk about for a second. Yeah, well, I think maybe joy isn't how I would look at it exactly, or fun isn't exactly how I would look at it when it comes to working on heavy material. I would say that there's an inner lightness and an element of play. So like I have a five-year-old and he sometimes tries to see what he can get away with. He can turn it off as quickly as he turns it on. And to him, he's exploring the world through play, play play-based learning. And there's a sense that we can borrow from five-year-olds in this. Like if we fully commit to being in something, do we need to buy into the myth that we all have to be tortured? One of my mentors used to always say, you don't have to be tortured to be a successful artist and a great artist. So, you know, everyone has different methodologies and I don't want to diss somebody who uses their own stuff or who loves to live in that for months at a time or anything like that. But to be in collaboration around people, we hear stories about what it's like to be on set with somebody who's like, you can't look me in the eye. I'm going to come for you physically. Like, we're not about that anymore. So where does my pursuit of liberty and the pursuit of happiness come up against your right to be in method? Yeah. And also, like, as an actor, there I don't know what the right word for it, but there is a way to have fun when you're doing a dramatic scene. And for me, it directly translates to how present I am, how, how much I'm allowing that moment to really have freedom. Like, that, that play is incredibly fulfilling as an actor, regardless of the content. I want to shift back to what you were saying about athletes and getting into this lonely work, this maybe sometimes not fun part, the prep, whatever process you do to to have the ability to then let go and do your art. I know from talking to friends that that lonely work is sometimes the hardest part. They just, they want to just already fly. They don't want to have to sit there and do the work so that they can fly. And if you don't fully commit to that prep work, you can never properly fly. And uh, I'd love to hear what you what you have to say about that 1% or rather that, you know, Kobe, the Kobe Bryant, I think that was who you were discussing, who who he does his free throws. It, it, no one is excused from this work just because it's art. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we all approach what we do on the daily with a mindset and a set of practice habits that come with it. Many of us are like, let me get this part out of the way so I can get to the good stuff. And that's certainly a way to go. If that's working for you, then just fast forward past this section. I spent so much of my time trying to get past all the part I didn't like to get to the part I did. And what I found is that I was only living for a few moments in my life. I was living for the moments on set and even those 
I'm sorry to say, were not enjoyable when I had done that whole process that way to lead to that moment. I was tortured. I was in a perfectionistic mindset. I was constantly worried that something was going to fall apart. It was not enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. So the lonely work, what does that look like for us as actors? Well, maybe it's memorizing. And what I will say is that the way we've designed systems really impact our enjoyment of the lonely work because of the truncated time. I'm sure that in casting, you would prefer to have more time than you're given. I know that for actors, we would sometimes not like to find out about it the night before. That's not the nature of the way the system is right now. That said, it takes 400 repetitions of something to carve a new synapse in the brain. So in terms of the amount of time we have, I got to slog through reading this 400 times, the Michael Caine method that he talks about. I just read it and I read it and I read it and I read it. We don't have time to do the long form anymore. We don't have time to do six to eight weeks like we learned in school to do it on a play. We have to figure out a way to do it in a shorter amount of time. Hopefully do it in a way that is effective and that we can trust. And the key, one of the three keys we've found from elite musicians and elite athletes is it's the way we're doing it. So. If we're torturing ourselves to get past it, and we're making it harder and longer, and we're not going to trust our lines on the day, and there's going to be more pressure. So we have to figure out a different approach to memorizing. I love research. I don't care if I get to do all of it before my audition prep is done, but I, I dig that. And I, that's something that I just know about myself. So if I spend a little time in that land, that part doesn't feel like torture to me. So the, the torture part is I want to act and I want other people to watch it, and I'm working alone. That part feels like torture. So I had to change my relationship to, well, when am I allowed to have fun? When am I allowed to measure things? And we have cameras now. We can practice taping in front of a camera and never send it. Like we have the ability to watch those tapes and break them down after like athletes do. We have a lot of people in our community if they have a similar philosophy, if we trust them and their reliable feedback loop, we can get better in pods like runner groups do in Boston. Which I have to say is obviously the whole point of castability, of why it was founded and why there's specific criteria around who these casting directors are so that whatever you're getting back is this very, very trusted. You don't need them to explain why they gave you the score. It's just a score over time. And, and then, but this can, you know, whether it's castability or a practice group of trusted peers, whatever you're doing, obviously these feedback loops are essential to growth. And there's a layer there that is something you hinted at earlier, which is let's say my confidence is like a sieve, like a spaghetti strainer, and I get all this feedback. It's going to fall right through the holes like water. I have to do the inner part of what do I believe about my own work? What am I noticing about my own work as an equal counterweight to getting externalized feedback? So I have to have a robust mental framework. Some people call it mental toughness, but it implies a little bit of toxic sort of like shielding, but it has to be robust. We can't get knocked over by a breeze. We have to be able to look like you both said at neutral information and be able to then act on it in our deliberate practice. So it all works together. And if you're feeling, if you're listening to this and feeling like I'm a little more sensitive than that, don't get discouraged because I have been on the other side and that is also a muscle you can grow. I, I agree with what you're saying. This toughness isn't the right word for it because it's not a shield. It's not a protecting. There's no energetic like outward. It's actually uh, calming down, trying to have awareness around what's coming up, really 
really slowing down and asking yourself what you really think, even if it it disagrees with that person. What do I notice in my tape first before you ask others what they notice? I think taking castability as you get your feedback from your casting directors, but before you send it in, ask yourself what you think it would score. Ask yourself what you would do differently every single time. So now I can look at my tapes after first literally asking you, how could I ever get better? (laughs) And now I can look at my tapes and know exactly what I would do differently the next time. You know yourself best. Well, also it's about practicing healthy interpretation of constructive criticism and looking at any sort of criticism as, okay, the intention of this, I know they're not intending to hurt me, right? This is, there's no malicious intent here. So I'm going, and even if maybe there is, okay, Maybe there is, but choose to interpret it constructively for yourself, right? So that you can use that information to better yourself as opposed as opposed to like letting that information harm you in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. Taylor, is it beneficial for me to spend this much time talking about biology for a moment? Please. We love that. Absolutely. I'm so interested. Please. So there's a part of our brain, we've all probably heard of the amygdala. And the amygdala response is that response that inside the center of our brain is telling us, it's like the size of an almond, and it determines fight, flight, freeze, like our response to something. So if we come into something, and we're already a little bit tenuous, or we're a little bit on shaky ground, we're bracing for the other shoe to drop, we're bracing for disaster, that part of our brain is lit up. That part of our brain is looking to be told that we don't belong here and ancient parts of our brain are on high alert. They're going to say, you're not part of this tribe and you're going to die in the wilderness. So you talked earlier about mindset and I just want to name that we believe there's maybe four different types of mindset. I know earlier we said growth and fixed, but when we think about neutral, that's one example of a mindset. There's also positive and negative So we all know what positive mindset is. It's when we're encouraging, we're kind, we give compliments, we use affirmations. We all know that negative mindset is when there's an uh, abundance of criticism. We all know that neutral mindset is probably something we do when we have a, a bit of perspective, maybe we've meditated or we take on that witnessing, observing perspective that comes from, um, you know, spending more time and distance from something. And then there's the kind of mindset we have when we're in a flow state which is no mind. I'm not even really thinking. I'm just reading and reacting. So if we think about these four different kinds of mind, there are positive versions of them or ones that are useful. And then there's toxic mimics. So for example, we can psych ourselves up into believing that we're amazing. And that's a toxic version of positive because we're not going to be able to take a note or take criticism or just. There's a toxic version of negative mindset, which is instead of being constructive criticism, we are demoralizing someone and taking away their confidence and they never want to step in front of a camera again. There is a toxic version of being stuck in witnessing and not committing. Like I could do a lot of things, like not committing to a specific path. And then I would say that, you know, when we get into flow state and it feels amazing, we try to chase it like we're chasing a dragon. So I'm naming those four just in case it informs what we discuss next, because what I am imagining and I'm keep hearing is that in order to assess data, I need to put myself not into just a positive mindset. That's not what we're after. I'm not trying to go in with a negative mindset bracing for something. I'm going in with a more neutral perspective. Am I willing to come into this knowing that I'm safe, knowing that this is just data, what great information, which is a phrase you hear us say a lot. And then If I really do value getting better, 
instead of getting my feelings hurt in this moment, it's okay to get my feelings hurt. But if I'm really valuing getting better, I need to process the feeling and then get back to the neutral mindset of really hearing what is behind these numbers. What is it that I'm being invited to do? Because that's what's going to make me a better collaborator, make me better at deliberate practice, and make me better in two years for my whole career. And what can they do when they see the email come through, castability report, before they open it? to try and get into a neutral mind. I don't see that any different than a performance. So we're called the performer's mindset because we treat every moment that we have to be switched on for the same. Whether you're getting on a plane for the first time in a couple years and people are wearing different degrees of masks, whether you're coming out to your parents, whether you are getting a piece of feedback or whether you're getting an acceptance letter to college, what is the energy and the mindset that you're bringing into that performance, that moment, that pressure moment. So maybe you need to breathe on purpose for two minutes, not 15. You don't need to have a positive meditation before opening an email, but like two minutes might put you into a more parasympathetic nervous system where it's rest and digest. I feel safe in the world. And then like, okay, maybe that makes it easier to experience this. Maybe I need to set an intention. Maybe I need to tell myself something like, hey, Whatever I read is just great information. You mentioned Kobe earlier, and he said the same thing about worry. He said it's such a waste of time in his mind because if he has a great game, all right, but tomorrow I have to do the whole process over again. And if I have a terrible game, all right, well, I have to do the whole process over again tomorrow. So it's almost like don't believe the hype of the good or the bad. Whatever the information is, it's just information. And so if we can allow ourselves to really see it, it's going to become more actionable sooner. Otherwise, we're kind of defending and hoping to prove to ourselves that we still got it. Right. If you allow yourself and give yourself the gift of committing to acting, if that's something you enjoy and, and love doing, instead of asking every event whether or not you deserve to keep doing it or not, it's just information which can only help you for the next time because it's your job. You're showing up every day. It's not about the result. Every single time is not make or break. Why do we only have to practice this when there's an audition? Why can't we practice this when we go on a date, when we make a cup of coffee, when we are going home for the holidays? Like 90% of what happens to us in the room is affected by what happens outside the room, the way we organize our lives, our time, our thinking, our practice habits, the way we embrace our nerves. So, so, so what if we practice this exact thing about some other part of our life that is disconnected from our identity? This is why I, you, you asked us, I think one of the first classes, like, why do you want to act and remembering that? And now this is very present for me. All of these tools, all of these ideas that you're talking about is everything I want to bring myself to as a person. I want to bring that into my relationship and in, into every uh, friendship I have into my hobbies. So pursuing it and acting is actually serving my entire life. I want to be more present. I want to have more neutral mind. I want to enjoy everything I'm doing. And acting is actually just a great catalyst and way to practice that. You know, castability can be detrimental if you're in the wrong mindset. I think that's exactly what we're talking about is the approach of like, well, what if I get low scores? And I want to like, just kind of talk about the positivity of receiving low scores. And how that is more beneficial than receiving, you know, fives across the board all the time. You know, you, you open an email, you got ones across the board, your response, your reaction to that is like, oh, I suck. But what the truth is, is that, okay, so step back 
and analyze, take a, a broader, more macro look at the situation. Okay, but I got ones across the board this time, but next time I got, you know, threes, fours, and fives. So what is it about this time that is it the, you know, whatever it is? And maybe there's a situation where you can be excited about receiving low scores. And you can kind of look at that in a way that is going to help you because it's not helpful to be told you're great every time. That's not helpful. That's not constructive. And that doesn't help us move forward. We're never going to be the best. We're never going to know everything. And I've, you know, really kind of when I, my, my whole situation has changed. My whole life has changed. I live in a completely different city. I was in LA for 14 years. I spent a long time. Like I've been here for two years now in Atlanta and I spent a long time trying to separate my identity with my former location and like all of that stuff. And, you know, I think it's just about accepting. We should always be learning and always want to be learning and improving and changing and growing there's always a ladder. There's always more to go. The other thing I just wondered if I could, there's a story that I would love to share that speaks to your point that you both just brought up, which is like, what if my score is zero? So Kobe Bryant came from a basketball playing family. He moved to Italy when he was really young. He played a lot of soccer there and he moved back to Pennsylvania. And there was a summer, he was in a summer league with older kids from downtown Philly. He says they had mustaches, some of them, they were much bigger. He was like, I'm never going to beat them. And at the end of the day, he scored zero points. And I don't mean in a game. I mean for the summer. The entire summer, he scored zero points. And so his dad took him aside and said, listen, whether you score 60 points or zero points, I just want you to know that I'm going to love you just the same. So what do you want to do? And so he decided, I want to go work before practice tomorrow on something that I can control, like dribbling with my left hand or whatever, for 30 days. And then he would go follow the coach and his teammates for the rest of practice. The next summer, he scored like 10, 8, 10, 12 points, maybe on average, nothing extraordinary. But by two years later, he led the state. All those people who were told repeatedly that they were amazing athletes stopped trying to get better. And he lapped them. And he continued that in the NBA. He was drafted uh, right out of Lower Marion High School. He was famous for going up to like Michael Jordan in the middle of the All-Star game being like, Michael, I saw on a poster that you do this thing when somebody tries to block you out. How do you... He was a lifelong learner. And it, I think that part of the reason why he would call Brian Grazer and say, I want to get into movies. What should I know about producing is what led him to win an Oscar. That hunger, that curiosity, and that growth mindset. And I just think it's extraordinary because he knew I'm not going to win this game today. It might be the same as like, I might not get a good score today. I might not book this job today. But if my long view is improvement, 1% gains means we're like 137 times better after a year. I don't know. It's like something extraordinary. That immense curiosity is the key. It's the key to letting go of perfectionism. I feel like it's an addict situation. And I consider myself sober from perfectionism with for like three years, but like definitely have my relapses. But the only thing that I think is the perfect counter to it is curiosity. If you are genuinely interested in acting and what makes it tick and what makes your instrument tick, it will divorce you from results-based need. I think it's really hard for people to let go of perfectionism for a couple reasons. One, they already are comfortable in that. And it's given, it's worked. And that's the thing. 
it has worked. So why am I going to let go of this thing that works? So it works to a degree. So my whole system of my approach as an actor, even when I booked jobs, when I got on set, I was in a perfectionistic mindset. So I was miserable during and I constantly felt like I was going to be found out and kicked off the job. So why do we interrupt perfectionism? Because I think it is motivating, but depleting. I think it will get us into the atmosphere and help us break through all the resistance of like launching a rocket into space, but it will never get us to land on the moon. And so there is another approach and it doesn't have to erode our confidence and make us not like ourselves when we get there, wherever there is. And so sometimes I think we have to imagine an alternative before we trust letting go of this thing that sort of works or has gotten us this far. And patience. You don't, just because you hear about it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it absolutely happens over time and with consistent curiosity and practice. Joe, I really think we definitely have to have you back on because I can think of 400 more things that we should talk about. But before you go, I do want to ask you to tell everybody, you know, where people can go to find more mindset work if that's something that they feel called to do and maybe a book or some sort of resource. I definitely want people to listen to your podcast, but if you could just tell everybody where to find out more. Yeah. So if you want to continue this conversation, we try to have a lot of resources for people. So our website is theperformersmindset.com. We've got a library of book suggestions that include ones you've already heard about on here. Probably notice that Mindset is on there. Um, I would say a recent fave is a book called Peak Performance. I absolutely love that book, Peak Performance. And then there's one book called Chatter by Ethan Cross, which is great about sort of like the noise to signal ratio in our brains. And then Burnout which is so important. A lot of people are feeling burnt out. So the Nagoski sisters book on burnout is extraordinary. And if you want to start somewhere, there's a great podcast interview with Brene Brown, since we're in podcasting land, where she interviews the two of them. And if you want to spend some time listening before you spend time reading, I recommend that. You know, we offer different kinds of training. We offer different tips in our newsletter, always what we're reading, what we're watching, what we're listening to, what we're thinking about. Um, we don't spam people. We write a newsletter once a month. And if we have a thing coming up, we'll probably tell you three times. We don't want to tell you every day. You know, we, we get it. People's inboxes are full. So we'll probably let you know that something's going up. We'll probably say, check in about it at some point and then say, here's the last time to dive in. But, you know, we post a lot of stuff on our Instagram page, which is at the performer's mindset. And you can always find me and all the normal platforms at me, Joe Town, and just let me know what you think of this conversation of, you know, what we're talking about here and what you're curious about. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll share all of those too. And we would love to hear what people are struggling with right now so we can address it because this has been very wonderful for me. Thank you so much, Joe. I look forward to having you back and talking some more. Thank you so much, Joe. So nice to talk to you. Same here, Amanda. So wonderful to, to spend this time with you. So have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Talk soon. The Castability app was created by Jay Boyer. Castability, the podcast, is produced by Fast Forward Productions. And hosted by the Castability team. Thanks for listening. 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 Thanks for listening.